Good morning. I said this many times, I'll say it again. Uh, once a month I get to preach at both campuses, and it's my favorite Sunday of the month. Um, I, don't, it, I just like it. I just like getting to do it. No one else really ever seems that enthused about it, but I genu- genuinely like it. Well, before I get into the sermon, uh, which is this, this morning we're going to just take a week off from Nehemiah, I'm going to preach on baptism. Before I get to that, I briefly want to, very briefly, want to uh, address the Supreme Court's ruling on same-sex marriage this week. I'm not going to preach on it, but uh, I think it's worth spending a few minutes on to explain where we stand as a church and where we believe the Bible stands. Uh, So this week, the Supreme Court ruled that individual states cannot ban uh, same-sex marriage. I think at that at the point there were 36 states that it, that permitted it, so the other 14 are no longer permitted to ban that. Pennsylvania same-sex marriage is illegal in Pennsylvania for over a year at least. Um, so honestly, that change in the law did not will not affect Pennsylvania because it was already legal in Pennsylvania. So I just want to make you aware of a couple things. Uh, in the middle of May, at our normal governing board meeting, our governing board approved about a five-page document uh, that explains our church's approach and policy towards same-sex marriages. It's, it, I'm not going to read the whole document because it's kind of long, but I am going to read, uh, in particular, a pa- just a paragraph that applies to same-sex marriage and just gender identity. So it says, uh, True Vine subscribes to the biblical belief that God creates human beings in his image as two distinct genders, male and female, and that the intended gender identity of an individual is determined by such individual's biological sex at birth. True Vine applies this belief regarding gender identity in all policies and programs in the church's faith community. In addition, Truvine subscribes to the biblical belief that God has instituted marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. The church recognizes only such marriages for all policies and programs in the church's faith community. Further, Truvine subscribes to the biblical belief that sexual desire is rightly fulfilled only within marriage and that unmarried singles who abstain from sex can be whole, mature persons as pleasing to God as persons who are faithful in marriage. So our governing board was completely unanimous in approving that statement. We didn't have any argument or we had discussion, but we didn't have disagreement. Now, I want to clarify quickly that a person's opinion on the biblical validity of same-sex marriage is not the same thing as their opinion on the legal right to same-sex marriage. Do you understand the difference? I mean, thankfully for me, the sins that I like have been legal. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, so, where we might have some variance in our church is some, some folks might say, you know what, I, I disagree with it, but I think I, I don't, I'm not opposed to it being legalized. Because there's a lot of other stuff that's legal that's not biblical. I think that's kind of maybe one of the main points I want to just drive home with this is just it's legal, it's just not biblical, okay? So 
And you know what? None of us sit on the Supreme Court. So we didn't get to really speak into that decision. Uh, where we do get to have influence is in our own church and over our own bodies and lives. So uh, I'm not going to teach on it today, but I will say this. There are six passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality. All six of them refer to it as a sin. There's, I, there's no... I don't see this as even a gray area, personally. Uh, there, there's no wiggle room here. Now, I think that, honestly, churches have not handled this topic well. And I think that a lot of churches have been fueled by fear more than love. And First John says that perfect love drives out fear. Um, I particularly remember in John 8 when Jesus encounters a woman who was caught in sexual sin. Remember they all wanted to stone her? Okay, good, because I'm going there with it right now. She was actually caught in adultery. Um, and, you know, this is what Jesus... Jesus, first of all, saved her life. So let me just, real quick... We ought to be willing to lay down our lives on behalf of uh, same-sex, uh, I won't say same-sex people, that sounds stupid, homosexuals. We should be willing to def defend their lives. And, and, you know, everybody that Jesus ever confronted in truth, he was willing to die for. And his willingness to die for them gave him the opportunity to say something difficult to them and to confront them. So I think that if the church was a little more willing to spill their own blood rather than spill someone else's blood, we probably would have a better testimony. But anyway, when Jesus uh, interacted with this woman in John 8, first of all, he saved her life from religious people. And he said to her at the end, I do not condemn you, now go and leave your life of sin. And I think that that probably should be our response, that we're not the ones to condemn. But at the same time, Jesus did not hide or, or soften or sugarcoat that it was still sin. So we're not going to change the Bible. We can't anyway. Any group that's ever tried to do that has died, died off, I mean, like, I'm telling you right now, it's every church movement, group, denomination, whatever, that, that is moving looser and looser on their grasp of Scripture is declining and dying because they're forfeiting power when they do that. They're forfeiting the power of the Holy Spirit when they do that. So we're not going to do that. Um, where was I going with that? We're not going to change the Bible. We can't, and I don't want to. I'm pretty happy with how it is, actually, even though it, even though it makes me uncomfortable in many days. Um, we're going to continue to follow what, what Orthodox Christianity has understood, and not only Christianity. I mean, this was around even before Jesus. This predates him. It's transcultural. So we're going to continue believing what we've believed before. Um, as long as I'm the pastor of this church, we will not perform same-sex marriages and we will not host them in our building. 
Okay. That being said, neither will we cast judgment, throw stones, mock, make jokes about, or hate homosexuals. Okay, good. You should clap for that too. Okay, good. Um, and I just, I feel like I need to do this just to be fair, and I'm going on vacation tomorrow, so I, I'm going to walk out. While we're pointing out the sinful nature of homosexuality, let me also say that if you're straight and sleeping with someone you're not married to, that's sin. That's sin. If you like, if you like to look at pornography, that's sin. <laughs> if you like to get large fries at Chick-fil-A, well, that's fine. Okay, well... Uh, you know, this is, I think, one of the things that is that is kind of uh, disqualified the church to have a, a, uh, a reasonable voice here, that we've prioritized sin and made some seem worse than others, and they're really all pretty wicked, right? So, so you know, if you're not married, you know, get Netflix and stay in on Fridays, I guess. I don't you know. I, if you're not married, you can still honor God, and you need to honor God, and there's only one appropriate place for sexual intercourse, and that's in the context of a heterosexual marriage. So, that's just, you know, I'm just trying to be fair. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the same parts of the Bible. I'm not even, like, pulling different things, because I read them all this morning. All right. Let me just leave us with this. Uh, this is a quote. I believe it's attributed to Billy Graham. I don't know whether he actually said it or not, but I think it's a good uh, place for us to land. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict of sin. It is God's job to judge. And it is my job to love. So, uh, even if you are in a... In, in a situation and have an opportunity where you're going to speak truth. Uh, truth does not trump love. They're equal parts. There's two parts of the same coin, and oftentimes it's love that motivates us to speak truth, but sometimes it's fear that motivates us to speak truth. Don't let fear motivate you to speak truth. Let love motivate you to speak truth. Okay. We good on that? You ready to talk about baptism? Okay, well, we're going to do that. All right, let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you, and uh, I pray, Lord, that you would give us love for everybody that's, that's like us, that's different than us, that agrees with us, that disagrees with us. And I pray that when we speak truth, it would be motivated in love and not fear. The world is not drawn to a fearful church. And so, Jesus, uh, as we look at your word, we love it. We, hide it in the holdest, we hold it in the highest regard. We believe that it to be uh, inerrant and perfect for our faith and for our practice. And I pray that you would uh, illuminate it for us today. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. All right. So...
We're going to be talking about baptism today, and the reason for that being that we about twice a year like to have baptisms. It's actually a mark of a New Testament church that it's baptizing people. So we also want to teach people about baptism so that they understand exactly what they're getting into. Uh, We don't want anyone to do stuff because of any sort of peer pressure or just empty tradition. We want a biblically literate congregation, okay? So today is going to feel probably very much more like teaching than preaching, because that's a little bit more my style anyway. Uh, We're not going to be in Nehemiah today. We're going to look at several baptisms from the book of Acts, and there is a pattern in those baptisms. So let me, let me clarify. Everybody say pattern. Okay. What I'm giving you today is not a formula. It's a pattern. It's not a formula that if you do a little bit of the, sprinkle this and sprinkle that and sprinkle this, you'll have a wonderful baptism. Okay. It's actually a pattern that reveals itself through the book of Acts, through scripture. So, uh, let's just jump right in. All right, I think I'm working my own slides today. All right, welcome to 2008. All right, so here's what I'd like to do today. There's going to be four different, sorry, three different passages that we're going to look at today. I'm going to need a volunteer to read each one. So if you've got a big, nice, booming voice and you like to read out loud, stretch out, you know, get your vocal cords warmed up because I'm going to be asking for some volunteers, all right? So the first passage is from Acts chapter 2. This is the story of Pentecost. At this point, tongues of fire have come. Peter has preached the gospel. 3,000 people are responding to the gospel, and Peter gives the call to response. So would anyone be willing to stand up? All right, Loretta, stand up and just loudly belt it out for us. Thank you. She did a great job, didn't she? She didn't even need a microphone. Okay, so this is, I guess we could say, the first baptism right after the church was formed in Acts chapter 2, and it was a big one. I mean, they, they started with a bang, 3,000 people. I don't even, can't even think of the logistics of baptizing 3,000 people. I mean, we barely can figure out how to do 15 people. So the fact that they baptized 3,000 people to me is impressive. But uh, let me again just review this. This this call for a response was preceded by a sermon from Peter where he shared the gospel and 3,000 people responded. So this uh, this is not just an isolated baptism. This is subsequent to a, a presentation or I should say a demonstration of the gospel. And 
37, they ask a question. So the people that are converted, the people that have decided to follow Jesus, they ask a question. They say, what do we do? Brethren, what shall we do? They ask. It's almost like they're so hungry for a response. I've preached in some situations like that where I don't even have to ask for a response. People are eager to respond. And then I've preached in other situations where it's like trying to pull it out of people. However Peter preached, I'm sure it was anointed by the Holy Spirit, they were begging, like, so what do we do now? Tell us what to do. That's like a preacher's dream right there. And he says, repent, each of you, be bat- repent, that's one, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins, that's two, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter lays out, it's like he thought about this, a nice three-point sermon for them of how they're supposed to respond. Number one is repent. Greek word is metanoia, and it means to think differently, okay? To basically change your mind about what you've been thinking or the direction of your thoughts. And so, because really, honestly, a lot of your life germinates up here in your thoughts, and that eventually is expressed through your actions and behaviors. So he tells them to repent. So Peter's pulling no punches. What do we do? And the first word he gives them is repent. I don't know if he said it like repent, all gravelly like that, but that's how I picture it. He was a fisherman. He might have thrown some expletives in. That would be interesting. Uh, So he says repent. And then he says each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this culture would have been familiar with baptism somewhat because John was baptizing people and there were some Jewish ceremonial practices that related to baptism, but they would not be familiar with being baptized in Jesus' name. That's new to them. And Peter even connects it to the forgiveness of their sins, which might stretch some people. And then there's a promise. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the pattern goes like this. Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the pattern that Peter lays out in Acts chapter 2. Now, that pattern continues through a couple other passages. This is a baptism from Acts chapter 8. This is Philip preaching. Oh, sorry, let me, yeah, this is Philip, and he's dealing with... uh, this guy named Simon, and Simon was a magician, actually, until he, until, he came to, until he came to faith. And in this town, I believe it was Ephesus, uh, I might be wrong about that, but it was some town. He collected, this was a town that there was a bunch of witchcraft and, and people were doing this stuff. They collected everything up and they burned it. Simon actually had a pretty sweet, thing going for him as a magician. He was performing all these uh, false miracles and little magic tricks, and people actually called him the great power. Did you see that? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. They actually referred to Simon as the great power. But Simon becomes a Christian, And he has a couple discipleship issues after that because he actually offers to buy the power of the Holy Spirit financially, which is kind of bad. It's pretty bad, actually. 
Um, although people still fall for that when they give televangelists money. Still thinking they can buy a blessing. You can't. It's been bought. The price was blood. Not a, not a seed offering. Anyway. So uh, could I get someone to read just what's on the screen? Any volunteers? Susan, go ahead, and I'll get you next. All right, thank you, Susan. Great job. Now, this is the same formula. It's broken up a little. Uh, it's not a formula. It's a pattern. It's the same pattern. It's broken up a little bit. But it says that when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God. So right there, there's a conversion experience. They believe and repent. It doesn't use the word repent. But to believe is to repent when it comes to the Christian faith. And so there's a conversion experience Nope. And uh, then they're baptized, and then down in verse 14, it says that they were prayed, uh, verse 15, uh, the apostles Peter and John came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So again, it's the same pattern. Uh, a conversion or repentance experience, baptism, receiving the Holy Spirit. Okay. Let's move on to the next one. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which um, I'm just going to, I'm not going to have anyone read this for the sake of time. I'm just going to point out one thing. This Ethiopian eunuch, he gives his life to the Lord on the road. He's on, he's traveling. He and uh, Philip are in a carriage. Carriage leads him to, uh, Philip leads him to the Lord by showing him the Old Testament because the New Testament was being written. Yeah, it wasn't written yet. Imagine having to lead everybody to the Lord from the Old Testament. So that's how they did it, and they were better at it than we are. So familiarize yourself with the other 39 books of the Bible. Uh, but here's where I get, here's where I just want to draw attention. Philip comes to the Lord, and he wants to be baptized on the spot. He says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip has one condition. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. I think that question is important. If you believe with all your heart, you may. You know, baptism is not for people who are thinking about following Jesus. It's not for people who are making uh, uh, or are considering following Jesus. It's to follow a heartfelt belief. I mean, the metaphor I think is so powerful. You are not. You're not dipping your toes into Jesus. You're getting dunked. You're getting immersed. The Greek word is baptizo, for baptize, and it means to immerse. All right, let me uh, continue on to Acts 19. This is the last one where our, uh, we're going to read out loud. And uh, did, were you interested in reading this? Yeah, I don't know your name, actually. 
Mika? All right, Mika, you want to stand up and read this real loud? Thank you. Great job, Mika. Okay. This passage is a really challenging passage. Uh, It says in Acts 19, if you read just a few verses prior, it says that they came across some disciples. Okay. And... The first time I read disciples, I think, okay, these are Christians. These are are people that know Jesus, all right? And then Paul asks them this question uh, at the top, and that's the top of verse 2 there, that I think is an important question that everyone needs to consider. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay, when you believed. All right, there's strike two. I I think we're talking about Christians here. They're disciples. They believed. He asked this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The fact that he even asked that question means Paul must have some sort of understanding of the Holy Spirit that's different than most American churches. What do you mean, did we receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I thought you got it all when you believed. Well, the guy that wrote the New Testament about the Holy Spirit asked this question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul also wrote, in Ephesians 1, that when you follow Christ, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. So at the moment of conversion, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote in Romans 8 that if you do not have the Holy Spirit, that you do not belong to Christ. But Paul also wrote, In the same book where he said you're sealed with the Holy Spirit at conversion, he also wrote in Ephesians 5, continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. So apparently there's something that happens at conversion, but there's more. You know, like don't settle for what you experienced on day one. There's a deeper level that you can experience the Holy Spirit than just that first encounter. Do you understand? Paul, Paul puts his foot down and he says, at the moment of... Con- wow, my feet got heavier over the years. <laughs> Something did. He puts his foot down and he says, Something happens the moment you're converted. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit. He says it twice in the book of Ephesians. But he also says, now, be filled with the Holy Spirit in the book of Ephesians. Which to me, and then the fact that he asks this question indicates that there is always more to the Holy Spirit. However much you've encountered, however much you've experienced, however much you've understood, you have not exhausted the person of the Holy Spirit, and there is always more that you can encounter, there is more that you can know, there is more of you that can be surrendered to Him, there's always more. So don't ever think you've arrived 
when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Now, back to baptism. Uh, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, nope, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Which, I don't even know what that... (laughs) So John... uh, Paul says, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance. Telling the people, so John's baptism was to tell people to believe in Jesus who was coming after John. So when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. So they had already converted, in my opinion. Then they're baptized. Then the Holy Spirit comes on them. So the same pattern here now this story is interesting because these folks had already been baptized they just didn't understand what happened which is kind of like my story I wouldn't say it was the same uh, set of circumstances but I was baptized as a kid and I did not know why I just knew that some dude was sprinkling water on me and my parents wanted me to do it. Uh, In fact, at the time, my parents were getting divorced, and I think they figured, let's get these kids baptized before we get divorced. I don't know the logic behind that, but uh, in any event, I was baptized as a kid. I remember it, but I did not understand it, nor was I asked if I wanted to be. Uh, It wasn't until I was 14 that I gave my life to Christ, And when I was about 16 or 17, I followed the Lord in baptism, which in my opinion is too long of a gap. Because there's no gaps like that in the Bible that I can find. It's pretty much conversion and baptism, like back to back right there. I I spread it out. You know, I like to take my time with things. Just kidding. Well, I do, but that's not an example you should follow. Uh, And so so they... the, the apostles then baptized them correctly. If you were baptized as a kid, but you didn't understand it, didn't know why, I want you to consider what we call believer's baptism, which is baptism when you understand it. So, so I'm going to teach you a couple church terms here. We believe in believer's baptism, okay? We don't baptize infants here. We dedicate infants. Uh, we just dedicated Heidi Cook last night and at the Tyson Ave service. We'll be dedicating Lucas and uh, Brielle Keough. We dedicate children. We do not baptize children because we need everybody that's going under that water to understand why they're going under that water. We teach them Romans 6, which says that in baptism, you are being buried and resurrected with Christ. Okay, that's the, that's the meaning. It has nothing to do with you getting spiritually clean. Just because there's water doesn't think you're taking a bath. The water represents you being buried in the grave and resurrected with Christ. That's the meaning of it, okay? So we want them to know that. Babies don't get that. I don't know if you guys have met many babies. They're foolish. They don't understand anything. So we believe in believer's baptism. Secondly, we believe in what, what we call, what others call, immersion baptism. So the difference between immersion baptism and other forms is some forms of baptism you sprinkle, 
So other, others you just completely dunked. Here's why we dunk. Two main reasons. First reason is that's the only kind of baptism in the Bible. There's, there's no sprinkling baptism in the Bible. There's sprinkling of blood for ceremonial practices, but there's no sprinkling baptism. Secondly, uh, we immerse because that most accurately represents Romans 6, being buried and resurrected. But Jesus wasn't sprinkled with a little dirt. He was, he was put in a tomb. So that's why we immerse or dunk. Another reason that we don't baptize babies is because if we dunk a baby, I'm going to jail. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons some churches sprinkle is because they don't feel comfortable dunking babies, so they sprinkle the babies. And even though I disagree with it theologically, I'd say, good idea. Don't dunk a baby. Um, all right, now, uh, just a couple, a couple last things on baptism, and I then I want to show you a video in a moment. These are just some practical things to consider. Almost every time we do a baptism, someone comes to us and they're in some sort of crisis of faith, some sort of crossroads. They come to us and, and they seem to think that the baptism is going to fix everything. It doesn't fix anything. Okay? Uh, if you think, you know, if, if you're real dry spiritually and your life is in crisis and your marriage is falling apart, you know, dunking you in a pond is not going to fix that. You know, it doesn't cause a change of heart. It is a demonstration of a change of heart that has already taken place. Baptism is not an, a, an act of magic. It's an act of obedience. It doesn't change your family. It doesn't change your job or your boss. It doesn't even change Jesus' heart toward you. It's, it's a demonstration of something you've already decided. It's, I like to compare it to marrying Jesus, okay? Like, when I got married, I didn't go up to the altar and say, man, I hope this really makes me love my wife. I chose to get married because I already loved my wife, and I wanted a public demonstration of it. Do you understand? Man, I didn't go to the altar. I did not go to the altar thinking, hope this works. She may have, but I didn't. My mind was made up. My mind was made up. This was just a, a public step to demonstrate to others the decision that I had made. Baptism is the first step of obedience for the Christian. Until you follow the Lord and believers' water baptism, your obedience will never be complete. It's the first step. If you skip the first step and go to step two, your foundation will have a crack in it. You can tithe, read your Bible, all that stuff that we ask people to do. If you don't follow the Lord in baptism, you skip step one. So I really strongly encourage people early in their faith, and I kind of regret that it took me three years uh, to figure it out, but... Do it early. Build your life on that foundation. Um, delayed obedience is disobedience. 
Don't put it off. Don't come up with a reason not to. Don't argue against it. Um, one of the things that breaks my heart is when people have just, in my opinion, ridiculous excuses to not get baptized. Oh, I was, I was going to go to the beach that weekend. I know you'll say that to me and Luis, but you would not say it to Jesus. Because in Revelation, Jesus has a sword in his mouth, and he might just get it out and ask you again. Um, there's really... Baptism is a command of Jesus. If you delay it, you're in disobedience. I don't know any other way to say it. Um, All right, so let me, uh, let me briefly show. This is a video by a guy named Francis Chan. It's only about four minutes long. Uh, it's, it's really simple. It's straightforward. I really like it. Uh, so if you would just give me four minutes to show this, and then I'm going to wrap it up. All right. Last time I spoke, and I spoke on the Holy Spirit, and it's been so good. I've had so many positive responses about this series on the Holy Spirit. But the last time I spoke, I got a lot of confusion coming back. A lot of people were confused after my last message over one issue. When I preached on Acts 2.38, uh, where the passage says, Repent and be baptized, and you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've had all sorts of emails and phone calls and letters asking, okay, well, it sounded like you were saying I have to repent and then be baptized and then receive the Holy Spirit. And then other people were asking, well, can I be a Christian without being baptized? Others were saying, can I be a Christian without repenting? Can I be a Christian without the Holy Spirit? And when does the Holy Spirit actually come in? If I just repent and do I get the Holy Spirit right then without being baptized? And all these questions came in and I, I want to answer them all with a question back at you. Why do you ask? Because they didn't ask. They, they asked one question. When they heard the message, when they heard the gospel message, when they heard that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he paid the penalty for their sins, he heard that he was buried and he rose from the grave, they asked a different question. They asked, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Peter's response was, well, you need to repent, be baptized, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know what? They didn't ask any questions after that. What they did was they repented, got baptized, and were filled with the Holy Spirit. I know, it's a crazy response, isn't it? They just did it. But we would rather ask a bunch of questions, and we would rather philosophize and speculate and go, well, yeah, but technically, can't you really, I mean, did they really have to get baptized? I mean, I mean, and when, when did the Holy Spirit come in? Was it when they got under the water? Was that when he came in? Or when they come out? 
Or was he already in them? Or did it take the Holy Spirit to get them to repent anyways in the first place? Or, or what if they were on their way down and they trip? You know, what, what, what about this? What about that? You guys, they just did it. I, I don't understand the questions. I don't understand where the questions are coming from. Because my seven-year-old, my seven-year-old was in service and she understood. My seven-year-old was in service that Saturday night, comes home crying and says, Dad, I want to be baptized. I want the Holy Spirit in me. I want to follow Jesus. And uh, I go, great, baby. That's great. So you know what you need to do? Come back tomorrow morning and get baptized. And so she did. And she's up here crying and, and asking Jesus, you know, asking for the Holy Spirit to come into her life to help her live the way that she went. My seven-year-old got it. She didn't come home and say, well, okay, Dad, explain this to me. It's crazy, but she just obeyed. It was like those believers back then that didn't sit around as a bunch of theological scholars. They just heard, repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Great, let's do it. They didn't care when the Spirit came in and what second, what moment, what came first. They just did it. And what's crazy to me is that we have gotten so off track in America, and the way we talk about the Bible, that nowadays people say you can be a Christian without repenting, being baptized, or having the Holy Spirit. I mean, how many gospel presentations do you hear where people say, well, just walk down an aisle, pray a prayer, receive Jesus? Okay, where do you see that in the Bible, though? I mean, I... He's written books and can live off that. I need a job. I, I just want to maybe elaborate on one point he made. Sometimes the need to discuss and dialogue and wrestle through a topic delays our obedience on a topic. And I'm, I'm all about, like, I want us to understand the Bible, and I know it, it's going to take us time to discuss and dialogue and have conversations. I get that. I'm, I'm in favor of that. But not if it's an excuse for us to disobey God. You know? If you're just delaying, finding a reason why oh, I don't really have to do these things, that's not good. So... I want to clarify exactly uh, who I'm talking to and what I'm saying to you. Many of you have already been baptized. Great. That's awesome. I'm glad. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you've already been baptized and and you're satisfied with that, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Begin to pray for those who are considering baptism. I mean, we have this... We're getting better at it. We're doing everything we can in our power. But we have this trend where we baptize people and that's the last time we ever see them. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough that it's a real concern that we have. And we are constantly saying, how do we address this? How do we address this? You know, It's like if we baptize 10 people, five of them fall off. And man, I, we are ruthless about it. I preach on it. Luis does a three-week class. 
They got to tell their story, share their, share their testimony. They got to run an obstacle course. There's all sorts of, hold your breath underwater for five minutes. It's, I mean, like, I know because I've sat in enough of them and heard enough that Luis does not pull any punches when it comes to the class that's required. Yes, yeah, somehow there's always someone that just didn't get it. And that's the last time we see him is when they come up out of the water. I don't understand it. I don't get it. But if you've already been baptized, can you start helping us pray against that? Here's what I do know. Right after Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by the devil. So I think right after baptism is when the enemy goes at people. Some people aren't ready for it. And I know that Luis already tells them. I mean, because they've come to me and said, Luis warned me, Luis warned me, Luis warned me. I don't know why that still caught him off guard. Basically what I'm saying is it's not our fault. I want everyone to know that. It's, it's theirs. Um, let's put blame where, where it should be. So if you're already baptized, can you please pray with us that we could break that trend? Okay. If you have not been baptized, you know, if you're not following Jesus, then don't get baptized because I don't want you to do things out of order and I don't want you to think that just dunking your head under the water is what saves you because it's not. Blood is more precious than water and it's Jesus' blood that it spilled which really redeems and saves us. Baptism is a, it's an outward expression that we've been saved. But if you're a Christian that has not been baptized, I want you to really start thinking about it because on August 1st, we're going to have a baptism. We're going to ask you to sit in a class with Luis for three weeks and, and be prepared. And you know what? If at the end of that class you're not prepared, number, I'd say two things. Number one, why not? What's it going to take? But if you're still not prepared, then please don't do it if you don't mean it. So do not do this with reservations or hesitation. If you're not ready today, let me tell you, get ready. Get ready. Do not do this to please someone else. You know, don't do it because your mom and dad want you to do it. Don't do it because your brother or sister wants you to do it. Don't do it because the pastors want you to do it. Do it because Jesus wants you to do it, told you to do it, and you want to please him and agree with him. Do not do this in order to obtain or attain salvation. Baptism does not save you, but it is a vital part of obedience to Christ. Uh, the, the thief on the cross who agreed with Jesus and blessed Jesus, was, was crucified and never had a chance to be baptized. But Jesus still said to him, today you'll see me in paradise. Baptism does not save you, but it demonstrates that you are saved. Do not do this out of tradition. Tradition, while I value it, has no salvific power. It doesn't save anyone. Do this in order to make a public proclamation of your faith in Christ. That's the reason. Because you love Jesus and you want to go public with it. And when we dunk you under that water, it's again from Romans 6, it's a metaphor that you're dying and being resurrected. If you're not ready to die, get ready. Because until you do, Jesus is he's going to come after your flesh for the sake of your soul. 
He's going to oppose your flesh in order to win your soul. So the sooner you give this fight up, the better for you. So this is what I want to do. I want to pray that the Lord would, uh, through the Holy Spirit, provoke some of us to consider this, to get baptized. I want to pray protection. And then I'm going to turn it over to Luis. Lord, I pray, uh, you said for us to be baptized, so we're not stretching this here. So would you, by the Holy Spirit, prick and provoke hearts to follow you in baptism, Lord? Give us the grace to obey and to submit to you and follow you in baptism, Lord. And uh, Lord, I pray for protection over the, the hearts and minds of those who are considering this. Lord, it's, it seems funny to even say we're considering obedience. Uh, but we're counting the cost, I suppose. So Lord, I pray that you would protect them from distraction, protect them from demonic attack, protect them from the doubt that creeps in. Uh, Lord, we, we want to be willing to discuss and answer questions, but we don't want to delay our obedience uh, for the sake of questions, Jesus. So give us quick understanding, uh, deep understanding. Help us to know your word and what you've asked of us and command us to do. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you, Jim. Amen. It's good. Good, 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 good stuff. All right, so some practice.